and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian Alfry, Spears Gilbert, Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Michael Aaron, a recent graduate of the University of Minnesota Law School and the student editor-in-chief of the Esports Bar Association Journal. We will discuss his note, Competing Competitions, Anti-Competitive Conduct by Publisher-Controlled Esports Leagues, which is published in the Minnesota Law Review. So welcome to the show, Michael. Hi, Brian. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no, it's, it's my pleasure. And I want to give a shout out to Natalie Morales, who recommended your note to me. I thought that was really cool for her to do. And I really enjoyed reading it. Um, and uh, so I, I will confess, Michael, that I personally did not really know anything about esports before reading your article, although I've heard about them um, in various contexts, including from my own university, which is promoting some esports related initiatives. So for listeners who might be as in the dark as as I am or was, could could you say a little something about what esports are? Of course. So esports in the most simplest form, is just the organized competitive playing of video games. And so video games have been around for a long time, from the very early ages of Pong. And naturally, with any game where there's a winner and a loser, there's going to be a competitive element to it. And as more and more people began to partake in these competitions, you know, we can look back to the arcade system, where people were competing for the high score, well, people got more and more competitive and people started to realize that there can actually be a scene around it, much like traditional sports. And so as the internet continued to develop and communities began to form around video games, we began seeing grassroots organizations or movements where people who just enjoyed playing video games, just like you and me playing Super Smash Brothers at home, finally get our friends to play with us and their friends and eventually want to determine who is the best among us. And just like traditional sports, there's an interest in actually viewing these competitions between players. And that's what esports is, is people realizing that there is entertainment value from these organized competitions. And Mm -hmm. so we have tournament organizers who gather up teams, players, and broadcast talent to create an entertainment product that is esports. Well, so for about how long have like professional or semi-professional or sort of like the business of esports as it exists today really existed? Were there kind of technological developments or developments in sort of the nature of video games that sort of were necessary for esports to sort of take the form that it takes today? Absolutely. Um, In the very beginning, like I mentioned, there was Pong, and you were limited to sitting in the same room playing against one another. And if somebody was in a different state or uh, in a different country, there was no way for you to ever compete against that person. There just wasn't the technological capacity to do so. But as technology advanced and we began to see the development of uh, the internet really and games such as StarCraft, Counter-Strike, Defense of the Ancients pop up, 
uh, around the year 2000, we begin to see online concurrent competitive play, which was critical for growing that initial infrastructure for esports. But really, the thing that drove esports to the new heights that it sees today was Twitch and the idea of online streaming. The fact that anybody around the world could tune in to anybody else playing a video game at the same time, albeit with minor delay, was revolutionary. And this distribution system of, I can be playing at home here in Minnesota, and somebody in Japan, China, Russia, South America, anywhere in the world can watch my play, truly transformed the industry from niche and local to global. Mm. Well, so what, what kind of games are we talking about here? I mean, are people engaged in esports playing sports games? Are they playing some other kind of game? Are there multiple games that are the basis for esports competition? And sort of, are there like, like how are kind of the, the different, uh, the different kind of groups of, of players or the different kind of competitive areas broken up in, in the esports sort of world, as it were? So there's, uh, you can really divide up the market for esports uh, a lot of different ways. You can splice it and dice it. But to get to your first question about what are people currently playing? Um, and it's anything where you can decide that there's a winner and a loser. It could be people at home playing Super Smash Brothers, which is one of the big games uh, in the fighting scene, fighting game community. On the other hand, there might be shooting games such as Call of Duty or CSGO that are really attractive right now, especially with the rise of the Call of Duty League. Or there's multiplayer online battle arenas, um, the most famous examples being Defense of the Ancient 2 or Dota 2, or the preeminent esports title above all, League of Legends. And League of Legends really is the one that we hear about uh, the most, apart from Fortnite. And it's interesting to see, actually, uh, just how people have branched out from these titles. Because as you mentioned, you think esports, and you might think that people are playing sports games. But that's a more recent phenomenon. We started with uh, one-on-one competition games like StarCraft, moved towards shooters, introduced MOBAs, uh, multiplayer online battle arenas and now we got to sports games and we see actually uh, an interesting intersection between sports and esports here where FIFA or the NBA who have uh, video game titles that reflect real life are now investing into esports leagues about the fictional video games about their real organizations. It's quite a interesting situation. Mm. And these leagues actually uh, can be divided up as well. So for each of these games, there's not just one scene. Uh, As I mentioned earlier, there's a professional component to it. At the very top, at the highest echelon, the best of the best players will compete against one another, usually in teams or one-on-one, depending on the type of game and just the limitations that the game impose. But The professional scene is usually what you'll hear about uh, with regards to large prize pools and online exhibitions being shown on ESPN. 
And that's the professional scene. But there are two other scenes, at least, that I've identified uh, currently existing. And the one immediately below the professional scene is the amateur market. And this is for the group of people that have committed to some extent to be semi-professional and are trying to break into the professional league. So a good example of this is the Academy League system in League of Legends. Every team, every professional team in uh, League of Legends Championship Series is also required to field a roster of players at the Amateur League, or, the, or what they call the Academy League. And these are people that may have seen professional play previously, or are looking to get more exposure for their excellent play, and eventually make it to the professional league. And we see a difference in viewership and a difference in attention to the amateur league than we do at the professional scene. And of course, just like sports has their professional league, their amateur league, they also have the collegiate scene, which should be viewed separately. Um, even now, today, uh, uh, different universities are providing scholarship for people that wish to play esports titles at a competitive level. And so we have seen uh, game publishers really start to invest in this collegiate scene uh, that, again, should be viewed separately from the amateur and professional scene. And in fact, by some of the, the different uh, rules for these leagues, is kept distinctly and conceptually separate. Well, so what's, you kind of alluded to this earlier, but what's the experience of being a spectator of esports actually like? And how does that affect the kind of esports economy, as it were? Like, how much money is at stake? Where is that money coming from? And sort of how is the economy of this industry actually structured? Right, so... Speaking of the esports economy, you have to start from the top and watch the money trickle down. At the very top of this pyramid is the publisher. So I'll use the example of League of Legends and the publisher Riot Games. I talk about it uh, pretty consistently because they are the best example of a top-down uh, publisher-controlled league in the esports economy. And there's a reason why they're at the top. Riot Games created League of Legends. They maintain a copyright over the game. And in order for anybody to exploit that work, they need to have a license. Just like if I want to play League of Legends at home, I have to agree to the end user licensing agreement and their terms of service. It's a requirement to play. And just like me, market participants like tournament organizers, teams, players, broadcast talent, everybody down the distribution chain depends on the esports title holder. So Riot Games will give a license to on-air talent, the players, the teams, and so on and so forth until the very end where it gets to the end user through distribution channels like Twitch or YouTube. And the monetization is particularly important because some of the figures being quoted in esports are, in fact, a little misleading. Uh, the biggest number you see uh, is the prize pool. So everybody thinks that players and teams truly are vying for this large, exorbitant sum of money. 
And while that's very attractive to say that, you know, esports is a billion dollar industry and we have ridiculous multi-million dollar prize pools, which both are true, it masks the real monetization of the industry. It all comes from advertising. So if I am the content producing broadcast talent, we have naming rights, for instance, for certain segments like, you know, the State Farm Analyst Board is one, uh, a recent sponsorship development with Riot Games. And they get millions of dollars for that, I'm sure. And that's where real money comes in because now that the esports developers is, excuse me, the esports publisher is controlling the revenue from the top down through a licensing system, you see that each person looking to exact revenue from the system needs to depend on advertisers as well. And sometimes they require Riot Games to do it for them. So Riot Games will contract with uh, sponsors to acquire money, the teams and the players, uh, usually while they are uh, in fact vying for this prize pool, also have their own sponsors. So when you buy a Cloud9 or a TSM jersey, it's going to have 17 different trademarks on it that are the sponsors for this organization. Or, for instance, there might be uh, advertising possibilities for these players, appearing in commercials uh, for Mercedes, for instance. Um, That's really where a lot of the money comes in, at least the more consistent revenue. Because if you are a team that does average... It, you will not see most of that money. And so your goal in order to be profitable, in order to be stable, is to develop a consistent revenue stream. And usually that's a revenue sharing agreement with the publisher who is controlling the revenue streams from the very top. And this goes down and down and down. And so we see through the distribution system, such as Twitch, just like any streamer can stream on Twitch and Twitch takes part of the advertising revenue that they generate and shares some of it with the streamer or here the tournament organizer themselves. Uh, that's how Twitch extracts value from the esports system. And finally, we get down to the consumer level. How does the consumer, well, the consumer just can log on to Twitch or YouTube or Facebook or Valve There's a lot of different streaming services that are popping up in order to capitalize on this consumer interest. Honestly, it's very easy to watch. And now, easier than ever, since there are esports competitions being shown on ESPN, which might be a more familiar format uh, to some consumer audiences. And consumers will interact with players, with fans. Uh, They will buy their jerseys, buy their tickets. And in fact, there is a growing interest in in in-person attendance. Uh, You can go out to California and view these uh, matches of League of Legends. Although the numbers naturally pale in comparison to your traditional sports, it's something that shouldn't be forgotten uh, because just like traditional sports, you can capitalize on in-person physical sponsorships, naming rights, uh, food, concession sales, ticket sales, there's a lot of ways to monetize in esports, but most importantly, sponsorships, naming rights, and advertisements are king in the industry. Mm. Well, so this is sort of answered by what you just said, but I wonder if you could amplify a little bit because I think for outsiders, it might not be obvious why we should think 
about esports in the context of sports and specifically in relation to some of the competitive concerns and competitive competition regulation that we might think about in a sports related context. But in, in your paper, you talk about why you think sports is in fact the right model for thinking about esports regulation. I wonder if you could talk a little about why, why you think that is. Like, what are the features of the kind of esports economy that ought to make us think that sort of the way we think about sports regulation is the way we ought to think about regulating these set of relationships as well? That's a good question, actually. In, in a lot of the esports literature, you'll see the natural comparison to sports. Um, for a while, esports struggled with its name. Uh, electronic sports, um, online gaming, competitive gaming. Um, uh, there were so many different names for it. And uh, it's interesting now that it turns to esports or what was, was an abbreviation of electronic sports, uh, particularly because it was so close to sports. Um, it, the, the comparisons were just so apparent that the name stuck. And sports is nothing more than organized competition in a game. You have your football, your hockey, your baseball. It's just a game. You and I could go back and play baseball or football, get a team together and compete. And just like a video game, you and I could play Super Smash Brothers right now. But there's a different element to it with sports and esports, and that's the organized competition part of it. And that's really what all of this economics comes down to is how do we extract value from this revenue stream for each actor down the distribution chain? Sports does it like uh, by organizing leagues, like the National Football League will organize teams to play. They sell naming rights to different segments in their content production shows. For instance, there's probably something very similar to the State Farm Analyst uh, segment or the the Lottie Blah highlight reel. You know, there's ample opportunity to sell rights like that. Um, And it's distributed via television. Twitch is simply the modern version of television. And so because of the number of parallels between esports and sports, the natural inclination is to view them as similar, or at least should be regulated similarly. Now, some people have fought back against that, um, viewing esports as more akin to the entertainment industry. But in terms of antitrust and uh, competition enforcement in the United States, Sports is a little clearer, although there's a mix. You can't disregard one side or the other, entertainment or sports. But sports is a very good comparison because, like in sports, in esports, there is cooperation among competitors. So, to put it very bluntly, I can't play against myself. That's just not entertaining for anybody to watch. Now, speedrunning is a different sort. You can debate whether or not that's esports and the like, but most esports titles involve player A versus player B. And so just like in sports where you have the Seattle Seahawks versus the Minnesota Vikings, you're going to have Cloud9 versus TSM. 
And these people, in order to have organized competition, they need organization. They need to agree to the terms of the game. What's at stake? Who can play? How much do we pay these players? There are critical administrative components that just need to be decided by all the participants in the league in order for there to be competitive balance. In order for the sports league or the esports league here to be able to say, everyone's on a fair playing ground. We are determining who is the best of the best. Nobody's receiving any advantage. This truly is the way to determine who is the best. And that is what is enticing to consumers is the determination of who is the best amongst the best. And antitrust in particular is very concerned with cooperation amongst competitors. Because you can imagine if uh, these two teams agreed that they would not pay players uh, above a certain threshold, that they're fixing the prices for uh, players, then all of a sudden we're concerned. There's no competition going on. Um, we want player salaries to reflect the talent and what the market is willing to pay for that talent. We don't want teams coming together to decide before any negotiations are entered into what the maximum price should be or what a possibly even minimum price should be. But on the flip side, some of those decisions, perhaps not related to price, but the rules of the game, for instance, if there's a bug in the game and it materially impacts the play. For instance, a player can't use a particular ability because of a bug in the game. No fault of theirs, no fault of the other teams. Well, a dispute will arise. Do we pause the game? Who determines if we continue playing this game? Do we need a new game? And teams have to decide before any of that arises how to resolve those disputes. It's an ancillary agreement to decide how disputes will be resolved. And sports leagues do it as well with the refs, and just, in e just like in esports where there are refs. And these, this is the type of cooperation that is simply inherent in both sports and esports, and what allows us to draw the natural comparisons between the two. So one of the things kind of driving your paper and some of the concerns you present in your paper is how, well, as you say, there's this sort of like dialectic almost of sport versus entertainment. And one kind of confounding factor, it seems like, is the role that copyright plays in esports that doesn't seem to exist in, in kind of more traditional sports. So what role specifically does copyright play in the esports industry specifically in relation to thinking about competition in the esports industry and even more specifically thinking about potential monopsony concerns in relation to the structure of the esports industry Right. So copyright is critical in esports. It is the fundamental basis uh, upon which the industry has been built. And in fact, it is the driving wedge between the comparison to sports. Um, to put simply, somebody owns the game of League of Legends, Riot Games. They control all the rights related to League of Legends, mainly protected through the regime of copyright. No one owns football. 
No, if I, if you and I go and play football in the backyard, nobody can say, stop that. That's my game. You can't play that game. But under copyright, which protects such literary and audiovisual works that video games are protected as, the license holder can go up to that person who is playing their game without a license and say, you don't have a license. You're infringing my copyright. Not only are you no longer allowed to play, I can stop you from playing and you need to pay me. And so that is the, the driving wedge between the sports comparison to esports because nobody owns football, somebody owns the underlying game. And as I alluded to earlier, this creates potentially problematic power structures in the industry. The publisher is at top and controls all revenue streams flowing down there from because they are the copyright holder, because no person could play the game, no competing tournament could exist without the express approval of the game publisher. And this is problematic, um, as you think. If somebody is controlling the entire market, if they are the ones determining the price, how much people get paid, then there's no competition. But that masks a little bit. There, there is something that needs to be said more explicitly, and that is, what, what is the market? Um, it's a difficult question, but one that is pivotal to esports. Because on the one hand, you want to compare it to sports and say, well, just like football is separate from soccer, League of Legends should be viewed separately from Overwatch. On the other hand, consumer preferences might lead to a different result. What if they view Overwatch and League of Legends as well, it's just another esports thing to watch. It's another entertainment product, just like two TV shows are competing against each other. Then, well, these games are close enough. Um, we'll divide it into fighting games and MOBAs and shooting games. And the fact of the matter is that no matter how much case law you look at, the question is very difficult to answer. Who controls the market? Because what is the market? And it's something that um, another paper, Max Muroff, has endeavored to, to outline. And it's something that I uh, struggle with in my own paper because it is such a nebulous question and one that is very, very fact dependent. Uh, but in the end, if you accept the proposition that the esports title League of Legends is a market in and of itself, and case law suggests that where copyright you know, protects this product in such a way that it, it almost subsumes the market, um, that might be an appropriate assumption. If you accept that a single esports title might be a market in and of itself, then you absolutely have the potential for a monopolist and a monopsonist on the other side. And just to clarify, uh, a monopolist is a sole seller, somebody that is going to be providing the product here is the esports content, such as the organized competition. A monopsonist, a mono, excuse me, a monopsonist is a sole buyer. Uh, for instance, on the other side, the league might be the only ones able to pay for talent. And so you have the problem where if there's only one league, 
for esports or in sports, there's no competition for the product or for talent. Mm. Copyright permits both. Copyright is what underlies the entire market. It's what transfers control, transfers the revenue down from the publisher to the very, very end player and consumer. Mm. Well, so from a competition and antitrust perspective, who is it we're primarily concerned about protecting in the esports context, do you think? I mean, is this a concern about protecting consumers from anti-competitive behavior primarily, or is it more a concern about protecting players from unfair business practices and ensuring that they can compete uh, fairly for a share of the revenue from the, from the industry? Or is it something else entirely? So it, it really, there, there's, a, there's a debate in antitrust law as to what does antitrust law do? What is it supposed to be doing? And you can look at the history of antitrust law from the enactment of the Sherman Act to modern day, and you see a waxing and waning of interests. Right now, the predominant model is consumer protection. Um, You should ultimately get consumers the best price possible. That is the fundamental goal. If firms are able to cooperate together and raise prices to the detriment of the consumer, that is the type of conduct that antitrust law seeks to regulate. But that doesn't mean that protecting the competitive structure is uh, a goal that is forgotten or ignored. And in fact, if you look uh, across the seas to Europe, there is a bit of more interest in protecting the competitive structure of the market, less so in the United States. But uh, I really see protecting the competitive structure of the market as affecting the same thing as protecting consumers in the end. For instance, if there is only one league, then all of, their con- all of the consumers have to buy tickets from this league, have to watch their content on whatever distribution channel they provide. And if they decide, oh, this isn't really a good, this isn't good content, I don't really like it. It's not what I want, and I'm paying too much for it they don't have any choice in the matter. They are stuck with whatever prices the league has decided to impose on them. But let's say antitrust law says, look, we we want to promote competition and we want to promote an interleague. So interleague would be the idea that there is a separate league. So let's say we have Riot Games LCS, which is the League of Legends Championship Series, And let's just create a fake company, um, Video Game Incorporated, with their video game championship series. All of a sudden, you have a consumer who sees two leagues and can make a choice. They can make a decision as to whether or not they want to go with LCS or this new fake video game championship series. And what does that do but increase competition between these two leagues? This is, in fact, the idea of competing competitions that I try and get at in my paper. If we have more than one league, prices and practices in esports 
will be to the benefit of the consumer. Prices will have to go down because now there is somebody challenging the incumbent market controller, essentially, um, and saying, if we have a better product at a better price point, you will be out of the market. And prices will have to go down because we're putting prices down. We are forcing you to compete to the benefit of the consumer. And so when you ask, is antitrust law in the sports and entertainment contest focusing on, is it just, you know, the end consumer benefit that we look at or whether it's, you know, the, the integrity of the market structure in and of itself, the, comp- the, the protection of competition for competition's sake, it's really both. Because if you protect competition, you're going to give benefits to the consumers. And if you just look at it from a price perspective for the consumers, yes, you might actually find those practices that stop the best price being available to those consumers, but you might miss other things that are just natural results of competition in and of itself. Mm. Well, so you note in the paper that some other scholars have proposed potential ways of mitigating or solving some of the competition-related problems you talk about or recognize in in the paper, but are skeptical of whether those solutions are going to be effective. So I wonder if just really, really briefly, you could kind of sketch out sort of what other people have suggested as a way to think about solving these problems and why you don't think those solutions are likely to be effective. Of course. So there are three main uh, competing solutions, and that's governance, copyright, and antitrust, actually. So the solution, just briefly, that I propose is a compulsory licensing scheme, essentially forcing the publisher to give a license to Uh, any tournament operator that wishes to organize competition around their game, thereby effectuating this competing competitions notion that I just uh, talked about. But other people have said that governance, for instance, is something that's more appropriate. Essentially, that some third party should overview the entire esports market and regulate it, just like any other market. Um, But it fails to really engage with copyright, in the idea that we want to reward those companies that are willing to put forth a product uh, that is protected by copyright and for them to monetize that product. We want to encourage that type of innovation in market incentivization. And governance really stomps on the publisher's ability to fully realize the potential revenue for their game. Other people have looked towards copyright and whether or not doctrines of fair use or copyright misuse potentially be expanded to excuse infringing conduct. Uh, And these authors really believe that fair use, that almost every streaming of the video game from an esports perspective should be excused under the doctrine of fair use. And again, it runs counter to this idea of promoting innovation. If we deprive the publisher who potentially created the game in the first place to to extract those revenues from the esports market, if we take away their way to monetize their game, there will be fewer games being brought to the market. And as I put, it's kind of like hammering in a screw. Yes, the job is done, but you're creating fractures for the rest of copyright law that might not be applicable to the esports context. 
And then finally, Max Miroff, who I mentioned before, uh, argues that antitrust law already provides an adequate vehicle for limiting the type of anti-competitive conduct that I'm worried about in my paper. And he essentially says that, as I've mentioned before, esports and sports, there are enough parallels that you can effectively create claims uh, under the uh, Sherman Act uh, to, to diminish any anti-competitive conduct. But I believe that Miroff is a bit uh, uh, misguided in antitrust ability to really regulate this new nascent market that is dependent upon self-regulation and technology. Two things that have been frustrating for the courts and for Congress. Uh, Self-regulation is the idea that nobody needs to intervene. And in fact, one major argument against the governance solution and sports history has this long history of self-regulation and pushing away any intervention by the courts, by Congress, by regulatory bodies, anybody else. Esports has the same problem. And technology. If there's anything the courts are ill-equipped to deal with, it is technological advances in a market that is revolutionizing every couple of years. Worst of all, the monitoring costs of his solution fall on the smaller stakeholders. If I'm an independent tournament operator, I have to infringe the copyright and I have to wait until they sue me before I can say, no, no, that's in violation of the antitrust law. That's copyright misuse. All these arguments or all these solutions put the burden on the small stakeholder. Meanwhile, compulsory license will provide them surety from the very beginning and will provide them the opportunity to extract revenues just like the publisher can on a more equal playing ground. Yeah. So I was interested that you kind of propose a compulsory licensing system along the lines of the recently passed Music Modernization Act. And I wonder if you could just talk briefly about sort of why you think that that's a potentially viable model and what you think that might look like in an esports context. Because I thought that was an interesting sort of analogy. Right, so uh, in 2018, Congress passed the Orangey Hatch uh, Bob Goodlatte Music Modernization Act. And this essentially was something that the music industry asked for. They said, there are new technologies out there, like Spotify, who uh, use an infringe first and defend later attitude towards the market. And... In fact, they have to. There are There is a demand, a consumer demand, for instantaneous music streaming. And Spotify is willing to meet that demand. And they're willing, in fact, to pay the licenses associated with streaming that music to the end consumer. But the sheer number of people involved, the sheer number of licenses that they would have to negotiate or find out who owns the music to is, is astronomical. And in fact, makes the market almost impossible to organize. And the other problem is that they can't agree. They can't, all the competitors can't come and agree that Spotify is fine. Then we have another antitrust problem. We've seen cases like that with ASCAP and BMI, where all of a sudden we're again, with same concerns with, uh, with, cooperating competitors. And so Congress stepped in and said, look, we will set uh, this 
statutory uh, collective management organization to determine who is needs to be paid, how much, at what rate, and Spotify, you just pay them. And I think that could actually be very, very useful in the esports context because on the one hand, you want other tournament operators to be able to compete with the publisher. You don't want the publisher to be able to see a competing tournament, see that their prices will have to go down because of the competing tournament, and simply yank away the copyright license that they afforded to them. It seems like a market failure because prices will go up and consumers will be harmed. But under a compulsory licensing scheme, the tournament operator could operate without fear of the publisher interfering with their independent tournament. And this compulsory license would be fairly limited. It is only for the use in organized competitive play. I don't try and tackle the problem with streaming and the arguments with fair use. Those engender different concerns. But when it comes to just tournament operators wanting to operate without fear of publisher re retaliation, should they become too successful, then I think a compulsory licensing system provides that stability. And that's something that the market has really lacked in esports, is that it is highly volatile. And esports leagues have attempted to mitigate that. And in fact, that mitigation has led to more concerns. For instance, Esports leagues used to have a relegation system whereby teams could fully drop out of the league if they failed to perform. On the one hand, that really increased competition within the league. On the other hand, if I'm a team and I just got relegated, I lost my entire revenue stream. And so they looked for more surety. They locked in the teams. But now nobody's allowed in. Now there's a little more cooperation among competitors. We have those same concerns. Because... And I think mainly because there's no inter-league competition. Antitrust law, copyright, all of it looks to intra-league competition. Can, can team A and team B compete most effectively is the idea of competitive balance. But if we introduce this idea of inter-league competitions, competing competitions through the use of compulsory license, we can allow the stability within each league without fear of increasing prices for consumers and reducing competition in the industry. Mm. Well, so Michael, in, in closing, I, mean, I thought your proposal to look to the kind of MMA structure and compulsory licenses was a clever way of solving the kinds of market failures that you point to in, in the paper. But, I guess I couldn't help but wonder, like, if we take the sports analogy seriously, right, and look to the observation that you make, that in the context of, quote-unquote, traditional sports, right, there's no copyright-related monopsony problem because no one owns the sport and anyone can play it without having to ask for for permission, right? And that's sort of the unique factor or the unique kind of quality of esports that sort of create problems that uh, other sport-related uh, economies don't have. I, I, I mean, 
Your solution is essentially a way of saying, look, there's a revenue stream. We need to figure out how to split it up. And compulsory licenses are a way of splitting it up. At the end of the day, do we need to split it up? I mean, do, do the publishers really need the revenue from esports or are they making plenty of revenue from what they're producing in other contexts such that maybe like the sort of 21st century way of thinking about video games should be, you know, every video game is sort of like a basketball or a baseball or a football and the people who play it are engaging in a 21st century version of what kids did in the 19th and early 20th centuries. Well, I think so. Uh, just to make sure that I got your, your question right. Why not just leave it as it's why not just maintain the status quo? It seems to be working, actually. Um, esports is flourishing right now. Um, we see increasing player salaries. We see, uh, I mean, free content being streamed through Twitch uh, constantly. You can tune in at any time and catch all of these videos. Uh, it seems like there's been no harm. There's no concern. Um, but it it fails to address that this might actually be a little too seductive. There might not be problems now, but we don't want to give them the power tools to, to stop competition in the future. There's already concerns with player bans. Um, why couldn't there be other tournaments being banned? Why can somebody be completely excluded from the market based off of copyright and we're going to stand by right now and wait for that to happen? Or do we take a more proactive approach to the situation? Do we understand that, in fact, they do have these rights because of the copyright, and we see the future concerns? We, we already see the start now with um, a couple of different instances of player bans, and in fact, uh, Nintendo has even pulled Super Smash Brothers from a tournament before. We need to stop that now, and we need to decide that the revenue stream is going to be split up amongst the different actors. And this, again, just tackles one very small problem, and that is, should an independent tournament operator be able to compete with the incumbent publisher-controlled esports league? It doesn't address whether or not players should be paid a certain amount whether or not they're able to set minimum rules and the like, or what competition might look like in the future. It just addresses whether or not the publisher should be the one to determine how many leagues there, on the, there are on the market. Mm, great. Well, Michael, thanks. This is a really fascinating interview, touching on a lot of uh, issues and ideas that I've been interested in for a long time. So I'm, I'm really glad I was able to talk to you about it and congrats on writing such a great paper. Thank you, Brian. I really appreciate you having me on for, for this interview. It was really fun discussing my work.